All right. Well, we live in a society where the Bible is definitely being constantly attacked. Uh, I'm sure all of you have heard people say things like the Bible's not trustworthy, the Bible's full of contradictions, uh, the Bible's not historically accurate, it's just a bunch of fairy tales that never actually happened. Uh, it's just another one of those religious do-good books. The trustworthiness of the Bible is definitely constantly being challenged and attacked, and it's being challenged and attacked for good reason, because if you can undermine the Bible, then you can undermine Christianity. Uh, something that we need to be uh, aware of as Christians is everything we believe about God, about salvation, about heaven and hell, about Jesus, uh, about what's right, about what's wrong, it comes from the Bible. Uh, so if you can undermine the Bible, then you undermine all that we hold to, all that we believe. And so the trustworthiness of the Bible should be of huge importance to us as Christians. And, and that's why I want to share tonight evidence that we have to prove that the Bible is not only trustworthy, but it is inspired by God. And my two main goals are first that you would leave with a greater confidence uh, in that reality, but also that you would feel like you are now more prepared to answer the skeptics, to answer friends and family and, and those who throw out those things of, oh, you can't trust the Bible or, you know, this or that, that you would feel like you have more evidence uh, to challenge those people with. Did you know that there are 26 other religious books that people of faith believe are divinely inspired, like the Quran, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, the Hindu Vedas? So why are we as Christians so convinced that the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God and not these other 26 religious books that people are claiming to be inspired? Well, there are many reasons we have to convince us the Bible is the trustworthy and inspired word of God. And tonight, I'm going to share with you 10 of those reasons. And I put an acronym there together to help you remember them. Uh, Matt's faces. So when you look at my face, you can hopefully think of these things. But uh, the M stands for manuscript evidence. A, author's uh, honesty about failures. T, transforming power for good. T, testimony of Jesus. S, survival. F, fulfilled prophecy. A, archaeological verification. C, consistent internally. E, external verification. And S, scientific accuracy. Now, because of time, uh, I can't do all 10 of these uh, in detail. And so what I'm going to do tonight is these four here that are underlined, we're going to focus on them and really dig into them and go into them in detail. And the other six, I'm just going to skim through really quick, just about a minute uh, on each one, just kind of sharing a few highlights uh, about them. Um, so we're going to cover a lot of great information tonight. We might go a little bit longer than usual, but I encourage you to take notes. Uh, because with a lot of information, uh, it's good to have some things written down to hopefully retain that. But we are recording this, so uh, if you do forget things and want to go back and listen again, uh, it'll be on the website. The first and most compelling reason we can be sure that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is inspired by God, is number one, fulfilled prophecy. If you can only remember one of these 10 reasons that I'm going to share with you tonight, I believe that this is the most powerful, this is the most significant, uh, and so if you go away with only one thing that you share with people who are skeptics, bring this one, fulfilled prophecy. Now when I say prophecy, I'm speaking of predicting the future by divine inspiration. Basically, it's God telling what's going to happen in the future before it does, uh, and those things transpiring. 
The Bible's ability to accurately predict the future is something that sets it apart from every other religious book. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Of those 26 religious books that I mentioned a moment ago, like the Quran, like the Hindu Vedas, like, like the Book of Mormon, not one of them contains any fulfilled prophecy. Think about that for a moment. All these religious books that claim to be divinely inspired, not one of them contains any fulfilled prophecy. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because only God can predict the future, and these books are not inspired by God. But not only are there no fulfilled prophecies in these other religious books, there's actually claims of prophecy that didn't happen. So they have unfulfilled prophecy, which is a negative against them. They're claiming this is going to take place, and it never does. Uh, and so not only do they don't have any prophecy, they have several unfulfilled prophecies, which shows they're not inspired by God. The Bible, on the other hand, is filled with thousands of specific fulfilled prophecies. Something important to note is that 25% of the Bible predicts the future. Think about that. I mean, you hold your Bible in your hand. 25% of it is prophetic. It is predicting future events. That's a huge percentage of the Bible that focuses on that. The Bible contains over 2,500 prophecies and already over 2,100 prophecies have been filled to the letter with no errors. Now, if the Bible predicted the future once or twice, you might say, well, that's coincidental and you know, anything can predict something once or twice. But when you have thousands of predictions that are specific and accurate, it's impossible to do unless the Bible is inspired by God. Now, I want you to really think about this evidence because, you know, for years as I sat in church, I heard people talk about fulfilled prophecy and the significance of it, and, and it just kind of really never sunk in to how important this was as an evidence for the proof that God's word is inspired by him. So let me give you some statistics to help you understand how amazing Bible prophecy is. Let's just take for a moment the 315 Bible prophecies focus on the Messiah. So Jesus fulfilled 315 Old Testament prophecies that were speaking of the Messiah. For example, I'll give you a couple of them. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, thought... Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. So this is prophesying very clearly the Messiah, where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, you already know the answer to that one. Matthew 2, 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. So Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, this Old Testament prophecy in Micah 5, 2. Here's another example. Isaiah Chapter 53, verse 5, it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This is prophesying about how the Messiah would be beaten and scourged. Matthew 27, uh, 26, then Pilate released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So Jesus fulfills this prophecy here in Isaiah 53. Now, here's where the statistical evidence becomes quite significant. We just looked at two prophecies. We know that Jesus fulfilled 315 of them. There's a book called Science Speaks, which focuses on the scientific proof of the accuracy of prophecy and the Bible. Uh, the author is a man by the name of Peter Stoner, who was chairman of mathematics and astronomy. Thank you. Uh, and 
This book just looks at the statistical probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies about the Messiah. Just eight, not 315, just eight. And the results are quite astounding. Mr. Stoner calculated the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That is a one with 17 zeros after it. Now, that's quite a large number, don't you agree? Now, to try to give you a little perspective of how impossible the odds are of 1 in 10 to the 17th power, the odds of someone winning the Texas Mega Million jackpot is 1 in 176 million. Horrible odds, which is why it's very foolish to play the lottery, but those odds are nothing compared to 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's such a big number that we really don't even comprehend how bad those odds are. And fortunately, Mr. Stoner gives an example, an illustration, to help us try to comprehend the magnitude of the odds of one person just fulfilling eight prophecies being one in ten to the 17th power. Mr. Stoner says this, If you took the state of Texas and you filled it two feet deep with silver dollars and marked one of those silver dollars with a red X. Then you took an individual, blindfolded them, and said, you can walk as far as you want in Texas. The odds that that person, when they bent down to pick up one silver dollar, being the one with the red X on it, is one in 10 to the 17th power. Basically, an impossibility. I mean, if I just took a bucket here and filled it full of silver dollars and put a red X on it, and I had Colson come up here and blindfold him, we could probably spend the rest of the night for him putting his hand in there, not pulling out the right one. Imagine all of Texas filled with silver dollars. That's just eight prophecies, but Jesus fulfilled 315 prophecies, which is definitely statistically a miracle. Now, I want you to compare that to the other religious gods or the other religious men that people worship, like uh, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Joseph Smith. There aren't any prophecies foretelling anything about their life, and that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because, once again, these men aren't God. These aren't people that worship the true God. So just 315 prophecies concerning Jesus prove the Bible is inspired. But you know what? As I already mentioned, there are over, there's 2,100 fulfilled prophecies already that we have in Scripture. Mr. Stoner gives us another calculation when it comes to all the prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled. And he says, the chance of all these being fulfilled by chance, without error, is 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. You want to know what that number is? That is a one with 2,000 zeros after it. As you can see from the slide, that that's an incomprehensible number to us, and obviously, mathematically, it is completely impossible for that to happen. Therefore, this is a wonderful evidence. The only way there are 2,100 predictions of the future that have come to pass exactly as they said they would is if God, who knows the future, inspired those and placed them in Scripture. Now, we could spend all week looking at the amazing prophecies in the Bible, but I want you to understand is fulfilled prophecy is an overwhelming evidence that the Bible is true, that the Bible is inspired by God. There's no way the Bible could predict the future over 2,000 times unless it was inspired by God. And when you're sharing with your unbelieving friends, if they're truly searching and they're truly open, this is one of those evidences when they start to ponder it, it has a lot of weight to it and hopefully will really change their heart to the reality of 
the Bible. So the first reason you can be sure that the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God is because of its fulfilled prophecies. The second reason you can be sure the Bible is a trustworthy word of God is archaeological verification. Archaeology is the study of past human life and culture by the recovery and examination of a remaining uh, material evidence such as graves and buildings and tools. These are the guys who go out and find old ruins and bones and, and they turn around and they tell us about them. Now, the archaeological evidence in favor of the Bible's historical accuracy is really amazing. In every instance, I want you to think about this, in every instance where the Bible can be or has been checked out archaeologically, it's been found to be 100% accurate. Every instance in Scripture where the Bible can be checked archaeologically, it's been found to be 100% accurate. Nelson Luke, who is considered one of the greatest archaeologists ever, wrote this. No archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Now these are the words of a man who's been given credit for over 1,500 archaeological digs in the nation of Israel and the surrounding areas where we see scripture. Now when these other supposed holy books are checked out archaeologically, we do not see the same thing. For example, not one piece of archaeological evidence has ever been found to support the Book of Mormon. Think about this. Think about the size of the Book of Mormon is about the same size as the Bible. It has no archaeological evidence to support anything written in it. Not a trace of the large cities it names, no ruins, no coins, no letters, no documents, no monuments, nothing in writing, not even the rivers or the mountains it mentions have any type of archaeological evidence to back it up. Now that's a problem if you're a Mormon. And this is a book that you believe is vitally inspired and everything that is said in it, you have no evidence archaeologically to support it. As Christians, we don't have that problem because for the past 150 years, archaeologists have been verifying the exact truthfulness of the Bible detailed in events and customs and persons and cities and nations and geographical locations. And here's an amazing number I want you to think about. The Book of Mormon has zero archaeological pieces of evidence in support of it. The Bible, there have been more than 25,000 archaeological discoveries within the region known as the Bible Lands that have confirmed the truthfulness of the Bible. Think about that. Over 25,000 archaeological finds that prove what the Bible says to be true. Let me give you some examples of what they have found. There was a discovery of the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah 20 years ago. And here's a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah and the ruins that they discovered. All over this area, archaeologists found something that really uh, puzzled them because it wasn't something that was in that area in any other place, but yet it just covered this whole place. And what they found was brimstone. Why would there be brimstone all over this place when it's nowhere else? It kind of you know, baffled them of why here in this one place is just full of brimstone. Here's a picture of archaeologists holding some of the brimstone that they had. 
It puzzles them, but as Christians, it shouldn't puzzle us at all, because if you know your Bible, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, we're told, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So here, what the archaeologists discovered is exactly what the Bible said. The reason there's brimstone everywhere is because God used fire and brimstone to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And still to this day, when they dig it up, that's what they find there, which supports the evidence that we see in Scripture. Archaeologists digging in modern-day Turkey have discovered the records of the Hittites. Now, this is significant because skeptics would often say, you know what, we can't trust the Bible because we don't have any record of this Hittite people ever existing. We don't believe they ever existed. So when the Bible says they did, obviously it's a farce. Obviously you can't trust it, blah, blah, blah. Well, you don't have to believe that because in 1845, archaeologist Austin Henry Laird discovered the lost Hittite capital in modern-day Iraq. There are numerous finds that you can look at in the British Museum, but here's a picture uh, of the dig sites with the wall. Uh, here's a picture of uh, the wall itself. Uh, here's a picture of the wall kind of zoomed in again. But once again, this archaeological find backs up the scripture that, yes, there was a group called the Hittites, and they did live in this area. Another interesting one is archaeologists found proof of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate's quite a significant individual in Scripture, more significant than the Hittites, because Pontius Pilate is the governor, the prefect of Judea, the one who ultimately had power to crucify Jesus or not. When you read through the Gospels, he's a very important character. Now, skeptics once again said, well, you can't really trust the Gospels because we have no record of Pontius Pilate's existence. And so, sure this is just a made-up thing and he never existed and so we can't believe it and we can't believe the story of what happened to Jesus. But June 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists led by Dr. Antonio Frova, they were uh, excavating the city of Caesarea uh, there in Israel and you know what? That was the place where the Romans had most of their hubs and in the jumbled ruins there was uncovered a large two-foot-wide, three-foot-high, five-inch-thick limestone rock with an inscription on it. Here's a picture of that rock, and when you translate the inscription into English, it reads, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. Now, this is amazing evidence. Not only does it say uh, his name, but it actually gives his title and place and where he was, which is exactly what the Bible says. Here's a man who was in Judea, who had the role of prefect, who was in charge, therefore, he could have and would have been able to execute Jesus. So once again, we have archaeological discovery that backs up the biblical record. Now, since there are over 25,000 archaeological discoveries, we could spend weeks upon weeks looking at them, but I just want you to recognize that when people have studied and examined the remains of the past, they've been able to prove what the Bible says is true. I mentioned this before, let me say it again. In every instance where the Bible can be or has been checked out archaeologically, it's been found to be 100% accurate. So the second reason that we can be confident that the Bible's trustworthy, that the Bible is inspired, is the archaeological verification that has happened over 25,000 times to prove that what the Bible says is true. The third reason we can be sure the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God is because it is consistent 
internally. The word consistent means being in agreement with itself, holding true as a group, not contradictory. Something I think you should really ponder is from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible gives an absolutely consistent message of how God is seeking to reconcile sinful man back to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible also has consistent answers to life's most controversial questions like, how did the universe come into existence? Does God exist? And if so, what is he like? Why does man exist? What is our purpose? What happens to me after I die? All those questions are consistently answered throughout the scriptures. Now you might think, big deal. Who cares? Well, why is that such a good evidence? Well, actually, it's a very big deal when you consider some important facts about the Bible. The first fact that, if you're not aware of, is the Bible is a collection of 66 different documents. It might be easy to have consistency through one document, but the Bible is not one document. It is 66 different documents, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. When you see Genesis, that's its own document. Exodus, that's its own document. Revelation, that's its own document. There's 66 separate documents that make up the one Bible. So when you hold your Bible in your hand, don't just think it's one. It's actually 66 documents put together in one for your convenience. Now, if one person wrote all 66 books, then yeah, it would be more likely that there would be consistency through all 66 of them. But the second thing we need to note is the Bible was not written by one author. It was actually written by 40 different authors. So not only do you have 66 different documents, you have 40 different authors writing those 66 documents, which once again makes the likelihood of consistency get less and less. To make it even more unlikely, the third thing we need to note is that many of these authors came from different educational and cultural backgrounds. Think about this. Peter, he's a fisherman. Daniel was a prime minister. David was a shepherd, and then he was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. Luke was a doctor. And you just start looking at all the authors, and you realize, man, they came from all sorts of different backgrounds. The Bible's consistency gets even more amazing when you consider the fourth thing we need to note the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, covering some 60 generations of people. That huge time span would make things much less likely to be consistent because of all the time that transpired between it. The Bible's consistency gets even more amazing when you consider the fifth thing we need to note. The Bible was written down in a multitude of different literary types. Some of the Bible's written down as history, some of it various forms of law, parables, poetry, personal correspondence, songs, and as already noted, prophecy. When you take all those different literary types, once again, it makes it much less likely for there to be consistency. And the final thing we need to note that would change the consistency of the Bible is the Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So when you look at these 66 documents written by 40 different authors with different backgrounds, with different literary types in three different languages over a span of 1,500 years, what is it you see? Well, you'd probably expect to see wavering ideas about who God is, chaos, contradictions, disunity, but that's not what we see at all. The Bible is a consistent, harmonious, contradiction-free, perfectly unified account of God seeking to reconcile sinful man back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you're not convinced this is amazing evidence of the divine origin of the Bible, I would just encourage you, go grab 10 people, separate them into different rooms, and ask them their opinion on the nature of the universe, the meaning of life, the origin of evil, the way of salvation, and watch the amount of different responses you get and how contradictory that would be just with 10 people asking those significant questions. The perfect consistency of 66 documents written by 40 different authors with different literary types and different languages over a 1,500-year span of time is impossible unless it was put together and inspired by God. So the fact that the Bible is consistent internally is another strong proof that it's inspired, that it's trustworthy, that we can know we can trust it. The fourth reason we can be sure the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God is because of the manuscript evidence. How many of you have heard someone say you can't trust the Bible because it's been corrupted and changed throughout the centuries? This is one of the things that Muslims love to say, Mormons love to say, Jehovah Witnesses and atheists, they all like to bring this attack against the Bible. They claim the Bible we have today is not like the original because it's been corrupted and changed throughout the centuries and therefore you cannot trust it. Well, we don't need to believe this commonly misheld conception and the reason we don't need to believe it is because of the overwhelming manuscript evidence that we have for the Bible. Back before the very first book was ever printed on the Gutenberg printing press in 1455, the Bible was copied by hand. Now, when we talk about manuscripts in reference to the Bible, this is what it means. A manuscript is any of those handwritten copies that have survived. As you can see from this picture on the slide, it could be a, a single verse on a piece of papyri or a whole chapter, a book, or even the whole Bible. They all funder, fall under the heading manuscripts. So these manuscripts, these handwritten copies of the scripture prove to us that the Bible that we have today is a very accurate reconstruction of the original. I want to tell you a quick story to try to help you understand this because as I try to get my head around it and try to explain it in a simple way, I felt that this would be something that is helpful because this is really what textual critics have done with the Bible. So let me throw this story out at you. I hope it helps. Most of you know I was a missionary in Scotland for 11 years, and, and let's say that as I was in Scotland, I hand-wrote a letter to my supporting church in California. It arrives, the pastor reads it, and he's super blessed by it. He's so blessed that the next Sunday, he says, you know what, I want to read this letter to the whole church and encourage them with it. Well, there that Sunday, we have five different missionaries visiting, and as they're sitting and they hear that letter read, they think, wow, we are really blessed by this letter. We would like a copy of it because we want to take it back to where we're serving, and we want to share it with the churches that we are pastors over. And so they, they take my letter and they go to copy it, but there's a problem. The photocopier is broken. So the pastor says, no problem. And he gets the church secretary to handwrite five copies of my letter. And he gives it to each one of these missionaries. And they go back to the countries where they're ministering in Russia and Hungary and Africa and Costa Rica and England. As they get back to their countries and they have their next Sunday service, they read this letter to their congregation. 
And people in that congregation, they say, man, I'm really touched by that letter. I would love a copy of it so I could give it to my friend and I could share it with my neighbor. And the same problem happens. Well, the photocopier is broken. And so what they do is they handwrite copies of this letter and they start handing it out and giving it to different people. Well, on and on the cycle goes, and within a century, hundreds of handwritten copies of my letter have been distributed to every country in the world. In the meantime, we all die and go and be with the Lord. 500 years from now, a Christian man comes across a copy of my letter titled Matthew McGoldrick's Letter to the Californian Church. He reads the letter. He loves it. It's blessing him. He wonders, you know, I wonder if this is an accurate rendition to the original. It's obviously not the original. It's in way too good of condition. And it says that this was written 500 years ago. This is now 2516. It says this letter was written in 2016. So I wonder if it's an accurate rendition of what the original says. So he begins to devote the rest of his life to finding other existing copies of this letter that I wrote. He puts together a team of textual critics. Now, textual critics are scholars who reconstruct missing original writings from existing manuscripts. Their goal is to determine as exactly as possible from the available evidence the original words of the documents in question. Basically, these scholars are are people who come together and they look at available manuscripts and try to determine what the original ones actually say. So this man also adds to his team historians and archaeologists, all experts in their field. They spend months on the internet. They're shopping on eBay. They're driving all over the world. They're visiting museums. They're following every lead that they can, and their search becomes very well done. Millions of dollars poorer, 20 years older, they have tracked down 300 copies of my letter, Matthew McGoldrick's letter to the Californian church. Then they lay out the copies on the floor, hoping to confirm what the original says. So what do they have? Do all the copies read exactly alike? No. A few are slightly different than others. Some reverse an order of a word or two. Some have a person's name misspelled. Some add an extra zero to a number. Some are missing a space between two words. Some are torn. Some are pretty beaten up, but some are in good condition and some are in great condition. Now picture yourself there in the room with this team of researchers. What do you think are the chances that this team would be able to, by comparing all 300 copies of the letter that they found, to reconstruct the original with a high level of accuracy? Well, actually, the chances are very, very good. And the reason why the chances are good is because they have hundreds of copies to compare and cross-check with one another. And because they have so many copies, it would be easy to pick out the error. Imagine there's a word that's reversed in its order. If that's in one copy, but you have 299 other copies that show it another way, you realize, oh, that's an error. It's easy to spot because you have all these different copies. So the more copies you have, the more you're able to reconstruct the original with a high level of accuracy. Now, the reason I share this story is because this is a real basic, rough illustration of what textual critics have done with the Bible. Most of the manuscript variations in the Bible are really just a matter of spelling, a matter of a a word being misspelled in a different place, uh, a number being bigger than in another place, but not one single doctrine is affected by any of these differences. Over the past few hundred years, textual critics have poured over the existing manuscript copies of the Bible. They spent countless hours examining all the evidence that they have found, and they have discovered that the Bible we have today is just like the original documents. 
Now, and I, what I mentioned, I mentioned 300. 300 of my letters were found in, in using that example, but I want you to think of the number that we have today in existence, and it's a much larger number than 300. There exists today 24,300 partial and complete manuscript copies just of the New Testament and tens of thousand more of the Old Testament. Now think about that. 300 copies would, would be a good amount to really start to determine what the original said. We have 24,300 partial and complete copies of the New Testament and tens of thousands more of the Old Testament. The sheer volume of manuscripts that we possess today greatly narrows the margin of doubt regarding what the original biblical document says. Now, you can look at these manuscripts for yourself. They're located in places like the British Museum, the Cambridge University Library, the Smithsonian Institute, Oxford University. The greatest manuscript discovery ever happened in March of 1947 in Israel. Here are Jenny and I in Israel in the Dead Sea. Behind us, you see that little cave. That little cave became an amazing point of discovery. A young shepherd boy entered that cave, and he found some jars containing several leather scrolls. Well, from 1947 to 1956, 11 more caves were discovered. The con uh, they contained hundreds of more Old Testament manuscripts, actually representing every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. They call these scrolls that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls because that's where they were found, in the Dead Sea. Now, these manuscripts were handwritten copies of the Old Testament that had been penned all the way back to the 3rd century B.C. up to uh, the 1st century A.D. Altogether, they found 600 manuscripts. Let me show some of them for you. Here is the scroll that they found of Isaiah. Uh, the whole scroll is there. Here's a picture of part of the scroll that contains uh, all of Genesis. Here's a picture of a scroll that contains the entire book of the Psalms. Uh, so those are just some of the manuscripts of the Old Testament, but as I already mentioned, we have 24,300 partial or complete manuscripts of the New Testament. Here is a picture of a scroll that contains 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, here's a picture of part of a scroll that contains some of Romans. Uh, here's a picture of a scroll that contains all of Matthew's gospel. Now, we could spend the rest of the night looking at pictures of scrolls because we have so many uh, that we could be looking at. But what I want you to understand is that by comparing these manuscripts and cross-checking them for accuracy with one another, textual critics have been convinced that in more than 99.5% of the cases, the original text can be reconstructed to near certainty. So what textual critics are telling us is that the ancient copies of the Bible that we have are an accurate reconstruction to the original. Basically, they're telling us the Bible has not been changed. It has not been corrupted. We can be confident in what we have today. Now, this is very interesting because there are a lot of people who make claims that you can't trust the Bible. You can't believe what it says. You can't trust the history it records. It's been changed. It's been corrupted. It's no longer like the original. I want to show you some very compelling evidence that will hopefully help you never to believe this lie that's been thrown out at the Bible, that it's been changed and corrupted. Something important for you to understand is that people who claim the Bible's been changed, the Bible's been corrupted, it's no longer like the original, they would turn around and tell you that you can trust some of these other ancient writings. 
Here is a chart of some of the ancient writings that scholars today completely trust. They trust the history that it records. They trust that they're accurate. They trust that the authors actually existed and what they say was true. Let's look at a few of these people and their writings that you'll probably be familiar with. And I want you to note four important things as we look at this. First of all, when they wrote the document. Second, the earliest copy we have today of that document. Third, the time span between the original and the copy. And fourth, the number of copies we have in existence today. Now, the reason I want you to note these four things is because these are the four things that they use to help determine how accurate the copy is to the original. You see, we don't have any original copies of these ancient documents. Uh, we, we just have copies of them. So these four things help textual critics to determine how likely it is for a copy to be like the original. Now, the time between the original writing and the first copy that you have is quite significant. The larger the time is, the more likely that it's been corrupted or it's been changed. The closer the time is, the less likely it's been corrupted and changed. The other thing that's important, as we noted earlier, are the amount of copies. The more copies you have, the more you can reconstruct the original to greater accuracy. The less copies you have, then you don't have that. So the main things we want to note with this list of ancient documents that scholars accept as accurate renditions of the original are the time span between the original and the copy and the number of copies we have today. Let's start with someone that I'm sure you're probably all familiar with and have heard, Plato. Some of you might have read some of Plato's works, perhaps uh, you've read some of his philosophical writings. Now, scholars believe that Plato was a real person and that the copies we have today of his writings are accurate to the original. Plato wrote many things, and the last thing he wrote was in 347 B.C. The earliest copy we have of any of his writings, as you see from the chart, is 900 A.D. So the time between the original document and the first copy that we have is 1,000 247 years. That's a pretty long span of time for corruption to happen, for things to be changed. But, hey, they accept Plato, no corruption, even though that big of a time. The number of copies we have of Plato's documents is seven. Not very many, if you're going to contrast those together and try to discover what the original says. But even with this large gap of time between the original copies and the very few number of copies we have, Scholars today accept Plato's writings as historically accurate, that the copies are just like the original, that we can trust it. Another person that you're probably very familiar with is Aristotle. The last thing Aristotle wrote was in 322 BC. The earliest copy we have of any of his writings is 1100 AD. So the time between the original document and the earliest copy today is even longer than Plato's. It's 1,422 years. But the number of copies we have is a little more. We have 49 as opposed to 7. But once again, even with this huge gap of time and few number of copies, most everyone today accepts that the copies we have of Aristotle's writing are accurate to the original. Another thing that I'm sure you're familiar with, Homer's Iliad. Another important document Homer's Iliad is one of the most impressive ancient documents we have today because it was written in 900 BC. And the earliest copy we have is 400 B.C., so the time between the original and the earliest copy is only 500 years. Much better than the other ones that were uh, the average on this list is 1,000 years. 
But you know, the other thing that's very significant about this, it has 643 copies in existence today. So 500 year span of time, 643 copies, which as I mentioned in my illustration of 300 copies of my letter, this is significant. If you have 643 copies, you have a lot of copies where you can find out, uh, is this like the original? The average number of copies on this list is only 20. So this has a lot going for it. Textual critics are very confident that the copies we have of Homer's Iliad are accurate to the original. Because if there's only 500 years between the original and the copy, and because we have such a large amount of copies in 643. Now, I've taken the time to point out these things for a very significant purpose. We don't see scholars or other people making claims about Plato, about Aristotle, about Homer, or anyone on this list like they do about the Bible. We don't hear them saying, oh, you can't trust Plato. You can't trust his writings. They're full of contradictions. You know, you can't believe it. You can't trust Aristotle. You can't trust his writings. You can't trust Homer. You can't trust his writing. They accept it as accurate, as things that we can hold to, as historically accurate. Now, this is where I get so frustrated because the manuscript evidence for the Bible is so far superior than everything on this list, it just gets me angered that they say, oh, you can trust that, but you can't trust the Bible. Look at this chart and see how the New Testament compares to these other ancient writings. The New Testament was written from 50 to 100 A.D., and the earliest copy we have of the New Testament today is 130 A.D., that's less than 100 years. So when you compare the New Testament to all of these other ancient documents where the average time span is 1,000 years between the original and the first copy, it blows all of them away. Homer's Iliad, which has said, oh, this is so great because it's only a 500-year span of time. Well, the New Testament is less than the 100-year span of time, so it blows that one away as well. Well, Homer's Iliad is also praised because it has six 143 copies. Surely we can know that this is like the original because of the amount of copies. Well, great. I would agree with that. The New Testament, on the other hand, is 24,300 copies and tens of thousands more of the Old Testament. But yet people will still say, oh, no, we can't trust it. But we can trust these other documents, even though the New Testament and the manuscript evidence for it blows these other documents away. There are numerous more manuscripts of the Bible than any other comparable ancient writings. They go back much closer to the original date of writing, and that in itself blows all of these other things away. Sir Frederick Kenyon, one of the leading authorities on the reliability of ancient manuscript, notice what he says about the Bible. The last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Unless we want to say there's nothing knowable about the past, there's no history that can be trusted, no Aristotle, no Plato, no Homer, we had better not make any claims about the historical accuracy of the Bible. Because the manuscripts of the Bible are far more numerous, older, and more accurate historically. They've been examined by a far greater amount of scholars for a much longer amount of time. So if someone's going to claim that the Bible's not an accurate and reliable copy to the original, 
then no manuscript in history is an accurate copy to the original because the Bible has so much more overwhelming evidence. So if you're saying, we can't trust this and you can't trust anything. So when you hear this claim that's often made by Muslims or Mormons or atheists that the Bible's been changed, it's been corrupted, it's no longer like the original, the reality is they have no proof to back up that claim. To demonstrate or prove that the Bible's been corrupted, someone would need to hold up an ancient copy and say, look, here's what the Bible used to say, and here's what the Bible says now. It's been changed, but they can't do that. That's exactly what the Mormons, the Muslims, the skeptics, they have no capacity to do. Why? Because when you go back to the ancient copies of the Bible that are still in existence today in museums and libraries around the world, you discover the truth that what you have holding in your hand is an accurate copy of what the original said. So you can be confident that the Bible is trustworthy, it is inspired, and the manuscript evidence proves that. So we've looked at four evidences in detail Fulfilled prophecy, archaeological verification, consistent internally, and manuscript evidence. And I want to close just taking about five minutes to blow through six that I wish we didn't have to because they're great as well. Uh, these I would kind of put at the top of my list, but uh, these other six are important. Uh, and so I gave you that card that you can remember these things, and hopefully this will uh, spark something and you can look at it even more on your own time. The fifth evidence that proves that the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God is external verification. Notice we looked at the internal significance of the consistency of the Bible, but also realized there are external sources outside of the Bible that prove what the Bible says. There are dozens of sources and writings outside of the Bible that verify the historical accuracy of many of the names of people, places, and events mentioned in the Bible. So we have many ancient sources and writings outside of the Bible confirming what the Bible says to be true. So Another evidence that we could spend a lot of time in, but I'm just going to throw that out to you. We don't just have the Bible itself. We also have external sources to help prove it as well. The sixth evidence that proves that the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God is scientific accuracy. Now think about this. Even though the Bible was written over 2,000 years ago, way before the invention of the microscope and the telescope and satellites, it does not contain any scientific errors. Not only is the Bible free from scientific errors, but it miraculously foretold things that took thousands of years for scientists today to catch up and understand and believe, like the fact that the earth is round. Scientists for years thought it was flat. They thought Christopher Columbus and traveling here was going to sail off the edge of it. They didn't have a concept because, you know, we have, now we know for sure we have you know, our Hubble telescopes and we have pictures of the earth being round. But in Job, we were told that thousands of years ago, the Bible revealed that, that the stars cannot be numbered. Did you know that there were two different uh, astronomers that tried to number the stars at different times? And imagine that, sitting out at night and trying to count them. And both came to, I think it was 1,026 and 1,006. Uh, and they thought they'd numbered all the stars, and they thought, you know, that's how many there are. But obviously, the Bible tells us the stars are innumerable. And now we recognize with all our technology that not only are the stars just in our galaxy innumerable, but we have billions of galaxies beyond that. The Bible tells us about how the water cycle works, the expanding universe, oceanography, wind patterns, that light can be divided, the purpose of the moon. I mean, all these things that only recently science has been able to understand, the Bible has told us thousands of years before. 
Now, when you think about other supposed inspired books and hear what they say, you realize some of their views are not so scientific. The Hindu scriptures say that the earth rests on the back of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle that is swimming in the great endless sea. Not so scientific when you think about the reality of what they're saying. The Greeks believe that the earth rests on the shoulders of Atlas. The Quran in Surah 1886 says that the sun sets in a muddy spring. Once again, not very scientific. We know that that's not true. It might look like that when you see in the distance the sun go down, but we know it's not setting in any muddy spring. The Bible reveals numerous scientific truths about the universe thousands of years before scientists discovered these things because it's inspired by God who created all these things and knew these things. The seventh evidence that proves the Bible is a trustworthy, inspired word of God, and I love this one. Some people don't really think about it too much, is the author's honesty about their failures. Think about this. When you look through Scripture and the authors of the Bible, they're so honest about their own failures. But when you look at other religious books, they always present the authors in this perfect, holy, wonderful light. They want to present themselves in the best light possible because that's just human nature. You write about yourself. You want to write in a good light. You want to describe yourself in a good way. You don't really want to talk about those sin issues. I mean, think of David. You know, we know that he's a murdering adulterer. Uh, we know that Moses was a murderer. We know that all these different, Peter was a denier of Jesus. I mean, all these things that I'm sure that they didn't want people for the rest of time to read about and know about, the authors of the Bible reveal their failures. And you know, if I was reading the Bible and all I heard was these guys were these perfect Christians who never made mistakes, I would have a hard time believing they existed. Existed. A hard time believing it was real because we realize that's not true to our experience of what we see, that we're all a bunch of sinful people. But the fact that they share honestly what these authors were like and what they went through, and you compare that to Muhammad and other religious writers, and you recognize, man, they put them in a light that's very different than what we see in the Bible. And so it's another one of those evidences that just kind of adds to the weight of all the others of, wow, the fact that they're honest about that adds to the authenticity of the Bible. The eighth evidence that proves the Bible is trustworthy inspired is the transforming power for good. You know, the Bible makes some bold claims, more than other books do, that it can actually change a life. That it's living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. That it can do a transforming work in someone if they'll follow it. And, you know, that's some bold claims that it makes. But you know what? When you look through history, you find that those claims are true. You find that those who apply what the Bible says to their life, there is a drastic change when cultures and like America, who is founded on biblical principles, you see the difference that the Bible makes not only to individuals, but to countries and cultures. And all you have to do is look through history or get even more personal. Just look at your own life. Your testimony proves this reality that the Bible has the ability to transform a life for good. It can change evil bad, wicked people into God-fearing, loving people who are a blessing to society instead of a curse. It has this power. Why? Because it's the inspired word of God. It's not just an ancient document. It's living, and it's powerful, and it can change people. The ninth evidence that proves that the Bible is a trustworthy, inspired word of God is the testimony of Jesus. You know, this is one of those where it kind of stops here for many people. Jesus taught... The Bible was the source of truth. In John 17, 17, he says, your word is truth. 
Jesus tells us the Bible is historically reliable. I love something that Jesus did. Did you know within the Old Testament, there are three events that are the most controversial, the most debated events, and those are three events that Jesus himself spoke of and said literally happened. They were historically accurate. You know what they are? Adam and Eve, Noah and the flood, and Jonah and the great fish. Three things that are the most attacked of all, Jesus, when he walked this earth, referenced all of them, spoke of them as literal things that we can trust, that the Old Testament referred to, and he says it is historically accurate. The Son of God declares them historically accurate. I think we can trust they're historically accurate as well. Jesus also predicted that the apostles, being filled by the Holy Spirit, be writing the New Testament. So he verified the Old Testament, predicted the New Testament. Both of those things show us that the testimony of Jesus helps us be confident that we can trust the Bible. The tenth and final evidence that proves that the Bible is the trustworthy, inspired word of God is its survival. And think about this. The Bible has survived for 3,500 years under the greatest amount of people trying to destroy it physically, intellectually. There's been more attacks against the Bible than any other book in history, and yet now it stands as strong as ever. More people have it than any other time in the history of the world. The survival of Scripture shows that there's someone behind it seeking to keep it alive more than just an ancient document that's floating out there. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And it will, and it will continue to stand regardless of who tries to destroy it physically, intellectually, whatever it is. The Bible, because it's God's word, will continue to stand. Another evidence that it is trustworthy and inspired. Now, that is just 10 evidences. There are many more. Uh, I think there's only so much that our brains can consume. So we just did that. But we've covered in detail four, quickly six more, but 10 as a whole. And I've given this acronym to hopefully help you remember as you think of my face, uh, Matt's faces. Uh, hopefully, I've given you those cards as well so that you can hold on to them. You can put them in your wallets. You can put them in your Bibles. Uh, and as you're talking with people, as you grab that out, hopefully at least one of those may be fulfilled prophecy, maybe the manuscript evidence. You know, whatever it is that would jump out and give you something that you remember that you could then take and share with someone who is claiming, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions or the Bible's been changed or you can't trust it, whatever. Say, so, well, actually, let me share something with you and just see, you know, what their response is going to be. But first and foremost, my desire for tonight was that you have a greater confidence in knowing the Bible is trustworthy and knowing it's inspired. And the ultimate goal of that would be that you would apply it to your life. That in every area, as we looked at this morning, all scripture is inspired by God, is unprofitable for so many different things. The reality is when you compare that to the way in which you live, to the way in which you think, your worldview, is it all centered on the scriptures? Because there are so many times where it's like, you know what? Oh yeah, I believe the Bible's here because I like what it says here and I like what it says there and I like what it says there, but I don't like what it says here. And so I'm not going to hold to that as inspired or at least as as important or whatever, but realizing, man, this is the inspired word of God. He gave it to us for a reason. We don't get to pick and choose what we like and what we don't. Ultimately, we need to hold that it's true and actually seek to live it out. So hopefully that's been helpful for you uh, and that you can utilize this uh, as you share with people who don't know these truths. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that you have given us 
your word that reveals the specifics of who you are, of your plan of redemption for us, of how you desire us to live, of the hope we have for the future in heaven with you. Lord, and that there are still 400 prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled about the future, and we know that you've already fulfilled the first 2,100, so we should be confident that when the Bible says these things are coming to pass soon, that we would believe that these things are coming to pass soon. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those that not just understand that your word is true, but that it would drive us to actually live it, to desire to uh, grow in our understanding of it, and to be obedient to it. God, I pray that as we encounter family and friends and coworkers and neighbors and, and other people who are skeptical, or maybe people from different religious backgrounds or different cults who are challenging the word of God, that we would now feel more confident in having a loving dialogue with these people and sharing some evidence that hopefully would help them to rethink these brainwashed thoughts that they often have, never looking at the evidence, and that we would be able to bring that evidence before them. Lord, we just pray that you would just bless us, encourage us, and help us to grow in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're all done. And for those of you who didn't get a card, I think Ray still has a few more. It's just a little uh, business card size you can keep and hold on to.